to another episode of the William Branham Historical Research Podcast. I'm your host, John Collins, the author and founder of William Branham Historical Research at william-branham.org. And with me, I have my co-host, researcher, minister, and friend, Charles Paisley, the founder of ChristianGospelChurch.org. Together, we're examining the history and the intersections in history between William Branham and other key figures that either influenced or were influenced by the post-World War II healing revivals. Charles, <clears throat> this has been quite an adventure <laughs> going through all of this research with you. And um, last week we just had the finale, and um, I said that I, w- I would be very happy if I never mentioned William Branham's name again. <laughs> and then now we're doing this <clears throat> to the audience who is unaware. I was fully exhausted. We actually did record this before that, and I forgot to hit the record button. So we're doing it again, and I'm having to mention that name again. <clears throat> but as I mentioned in the finale, I um, there's no way to get around it in the research that I'm doing. William Branham is a central conduit between all of these different movements, so there will be times in which we have to, but... The focus is about to shift, and um, I'm actually really excited about that shift, which leads us to the first question that I know is on everybody's minds, Charles. Are you going to be joining me whenever that shift happens later this fall and we come back to the podcast? (laughs) Well, time will tell. Uh, If you stick around, uh, our viewers will get to find out. Um, so we'll, we just have to wait and see. I, I think I might still have something to, that I can further contribute. Um, there is lots of other directions things could go. So, um, I guess I'll just have to leave everyone in suspense. <laughs> well, sometimes suspense is good. I'm, <clears throat> I'm really excited about the shift because there are histories that we kind of you know, we lifted up the rock and we saw the spiders flying, uh, spiders fleeing. And um, I was very curious. Some of those rocks that we turned over, I was very curious to look deeper. And we, you know, we just skimmed the surface. So that is that is very exciting to me. But um, so <clears throat> we promised at the early on in this show, um, you know, it's been a few months now. We promised that we would answer some questions, and people have sent us lots of questions. <laughs> we actually will not be able to answer them all. Um, we're going to do our best to get the most important ones, and we're going to avoid some of them. A lot of them, you can really tell who was asking. It was either somebody who was really curious about the research from either a historical perspective or if they were in the cult, there were questions that they had. And then there were this whole slew of questions that were about my person. (laughs) And and you can tell those were probably from cult members who were trying to, you know, trying to get under my skin or whatever. And I just, I don't entertain that type of thing. So we're going to get through the good questions. And um, one of the most interesting for me as you know, as somebody who hasn't seen any of the hype that came with this, I um, <laughs> I got into it a little bit while just reading about it. But we had several people ask us if Bill Gothard and the Institute of the Bible Life Principles were connected to the Latter Rain movement. So, Charles, let's kick off the questions and answers with that question. And um, to the audience, this is probably going to go long, so we'll probably split it up in multiple sections. And um, I'm actually going to try to chop it up even further than that to make it easy for people who ask the questions. So let's kick this off, Charles. Let's talk about Bill Gothard. Yeah, so Bill Gothard uh, might be a name that our audience isn't familiar with. He's not someone I I don't believe we've mentioned him at any point in our series. Um, but he is a fairly famous um, evangelical-type leader. Um, he's probably most well-known for a set of homeschool programs that he created, which were really very popular among a lot of Christian homeschool groups in the 1990s and into the 2000s. And Bill Gothard um, developed a really large following around what he called the Institute for Basic Life Principles. 
and he presented it as something both educational and religious. And the Duggar family on television, they're from that TV show 19 Kids and Counting, um, they used his homeschool material, and at a certain point, they joined his movement. Now, it doesn't seem like they were always part of his movement. There was a point in time when the Duggars were more um, normal Christians, uh, but then at a certain point, it seems like they joined his movement, and um, which, I mean in all honesty, is a cult. So <laughs> at some point they joined a cult uh, during the middle of their program. And so as you look at Bill Gothard's teachings, um, they bear a striking resemblance to the teachings of the shepherding movement. Um, and if you recall, the shepherding movement is one of the main branches of the Latter Rain movement. Um, it was started by elders out of Sharon Orphanage in combination with Dern Baxter, who was, you know, one of William Branham's um, most important partners during the early years of his campaigning. And they produced the uh, shepherding movement as you come into the late 60s and 1970s. And from what I have looked at, just the resemblance between the shepherding movement teachings and Bill Gothard's teachings are very striking, especially in their... Um, basically their formula for leadership. Um, so the shepherding movement teaches you that you, you basically report up to your shepherd and then there's all these different layers, um, and you can only grow and be protected, um, in the Lord if you stay under the subjection of your shepherd. Okay. And then the shepherd guides your life. Um, and it, it's not just simply a pastor over a whole church, but it's like even within a single church, you have like a pyramid structure within a single church and then multiple churches pyramid together all the way up to, um, they had this ring of leaders at the top, which, which then shepherded the shepherds, which shepherded other shepherds, which shepherded other shepherds, which ended up shepherding the individuals. Well, Bill Gothard had a very similar, um, strategy. He called it, um, he called it umbrellas of uh, umbrellas of protection, and you had to stay under your umbrella of protection. And then it's the same thing. Um, each umbrella has a bigger umbrella over top of it until you get all the way up to the top, and you've got your biggest uh, guy at the top, which is Bill Gothard. So, so it's basically the it's it is so remarkably similar to the shepherding movement, and even the language and terms that are employed. Um, it's almost ripped straight out of the shepherding movement, some of that stuff. And so I, I feel very comfortable in saying that Bill Gothard was somewhere along the way deeply influenced by the shepherding movement. Um, and I've also read that uh, Bill Gothard was uh, in contact and worked a bit with both Ern Baxter and Bob Mumford uh, in the late 60s and early 70s, which were two of the leading members of the shepherding movement. So I think it's a pretty safe assumption to say that Bill Gothard was at some level influenced by the shepherding movement. For me, this question is interesting because <clears throat> it is the equivalent of asking, was America influenced by the American Revolution? <laughs> You've got this movement that literally impacted the entire world. The Lateran movement was a cancer that spread among all American churches, <clears throat> whether they adopted it or whether they refused it, in my opinion, both sides still were influenced to some extent by this thing. And it really couldn't help to be because there were so many, there's so much hype around it. And there were so many people who got in it and were influenced by it, realized it was heresy and then left it. And then they went on to better movements and some, you know, I'm not saying that they're all cults, but some of them created non-cult Christianity, but still had some of this influence and it lingered. And so it was like this cancer that spread <clears throat> and it, I, I know this is going to be a non-answer, but we're going to be getting into the, the broader movement in general, whenever I come back to the podcast. And after the break, I'm getting into some of the stones that we did not fully examine when we turned them over. This, for me, in my opinion, this is one of the stones because the American Christianity was deeply influenced before the Latter Rain movement. 
And as a result of that influence, the Lateran movement had a fertile ground that it could easily produce fruit. <clears throat> so we're getting into that history. Was Bill Gothard directly influenced by William Branham? I think that is a question that I don't have an answer to. I don't think there is any publication that would suggest that. But this thing that was created, that the Lateran movement was built upon, influenced several people, and Bill Gothard was one of those people. I recommend the book um, Freedom of Mind and Combating Cult Mind Control. I actually start with Combating Cult Mind Control. You can get it on Amazon. <clears throat> what you'll find is there are there's a cult framework that exists, and that cult framework, even though the Bill Gothard cult looks so similar to the message, you can almost pull up any cult throughout history, <laughs> and they'll say, that looks similar to the message. This also looks similar to the message. Scientology, it looks similar to the message. Well, the framework is exactly the same. And whether devious minds are doing it on purpose or they just fall into some error and they happen to create the same structure, the cult structure exists. And if you look at combating cult mind control, it fully explains how the cult structure works and how it morphs and cross-pollinates and it you know throughout time this will continue forever so yes it looks the same because technically if you rip off the doctrinal aspects of bill gothard's teaching it is the same it just has different elements of doctrine bolted on top of the cult structure right and and that is something i think a lot of people when they especially the message, like when we examine one message group to the next, or we examine one laterine splinter group to the next, um, they tend to go and look at the the doctrines, and they say, well, this doctrine is 5% different, this one's 10% different, this one's 30% different, it's not the same movement, but it, it, it that just kind of ignores the reality of how these groups come into existence, right? Somewhere someone was influenced by somebody and they learned something from them and they, they took that and they replicated parts of it. They didn't replicate the whole thing, they replicated parts of it. And so you get part of your influence from William Brown. You get part of your influence from Father Divine and you're Jim Jones, right? <laughs> like you don't you don't pull it all from the same place. And so it it's the same with Bill Gothard. It's definitely true, you know, he's not fully influenced by shepherding movement. There's elements that are are not from the shepherding movement and if you dig far enough, you'll probably find out where those come from, but you you can see that it these people pull together um elements of this and that from different areas and, and produce a movement. But you're right, at the very core of it, you have the same framework. You have a framework that allows all of this to happen. And that framework is almost identical across every single cult, right? And when you're in the cult, the only thing that matters to you is doctrine. Doctrine, 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 because you're indoctrinated. Uh, but when you're free from indoctrination, then you're able to look at step back and just look, how did this thing work? And then when you see the framework of how this thing actually worked to control people and indoctrinate them, that framework is largely the same in every single cult group, right? Some of them just, yeah. they tighten the screws a little more here or there, but the basic framework for pulling it off is the same, really, from group to group. Um, and I personally, I would love to know more about Bill Gothard. I think he's a little bit outside of our wheelhouse. He's more into... Um, more tied, I think, to classical fundamentalism than uh, the Pentecostal movement. So uh, it, I would say it's a different branch of the fundamentalist tree <laughs> than what we come from, John. Uh, but there are definitely some ideological links to him and between him and the shepherding movement. So it takes us to our next question, and uh, I'll let you take a stab at this one, John. It's, where does Charles Peter Wagner fit into all of this? Was he ever part of the latter rain movement? You know, I dug into Wagner based on, actually, based on the author of the um, <clears throat> Combating Cult Mind Control book, he suggested that I dig into Wagner a bit. And, you know, whenever I first examined Wagner and some of the cults that splintered from his branch of, the, uh, of this part of American religion, I thought, well, this looks exactly like the message. And then when you peel back the theology, like you said, the theology is different. The framework is the same. But 
interestingly, the theology wasn't that different. <laughs> it was very similar. <clears throat> there were just elements of the, you know, the message morphed into the historical cult message, the the legend, the legendary cult. It didn't match any of that because that that postdated Wagner's affiliation. But Wagner is the person who coined the term the New Apostolic Reformation. And he gets credit for producing the framework, the foundation for the framework of the New Apostolic Reformation. However, as the research is now starting to indicate, he is just the person who coined the term. And he was riding a much bigger wave. He was heavily influential in that wave, but he was riding the wave that not only William Branham, but all of these others that... Um, the podcast we'll get into next season. He's writing this wave that was created by several different parties. And to say, was he in the Lateran movement? Was he not? It's difficult because he was a missionary and he was out of the country for a good part of this. And then he came back and got involved with Fuller and the Fuller Seminary. He was very, very high ranking. He was a director, I believe, at the Fuller Seminary. Fuller worked, as we'll examine in the future, Fuller worked to some extent with William Branham. And William Branham even mentions working with Fuller and claiming that Fuller did not adopt the latter reign until he met with William Branham. And then they held some revivals together. So there's definitely some latter reign influence in the Fuller Seminary. And we know Wagner was a director in the Fuller Seminary. So I think it's safe to say that he was either directly influenced by the latter rain or he was one step removed influenced by the latter rain through Charles Fuller. My opinion is I think he was deeply influenced by latter rain. Wagner is someone who's definitely worth a, a deeper look. I've, I've spent some time uh, looking into Wagner and some of the different things that he's published and wrote and taught. Um, from, from what I can tell, uh, from what I can gather is he was, um, he is definitely the guy who termed the phrase New Apostolic Reformation, and he did play an important role in the development of, of the idea of what New Apostolic Reformation is. Um, but as far as I can tell, he was not part of the Latter Rain movement in its heyday in the 40s, the 50s, and the 60s. But coming into the 1970s, um, we can say for sure that he started to have some influence from people associated with Latter Rain as you come into the 1970s, for sure. Um, like you mentioned, when he became a professor and eventually director at Fuller Seminary, that started in 1971. Um, and Fuller Seminary is in Los Angeles, and quite a few different Lateran people uh, who had been influenced by Lateran became influential at that seminary. Charles Fuller himself, like you mentioned, who started that seminary, he actually died in 1968, so three years before Wagner um, joined the staff there. But Charles Fuller was a man who had worked, Charles Fuller had worked not only with William Branham, he had also worked directly with Gerald Winrod, the Nazi, and directly with Roy Davis, the Klan leader. Okay, so Charles Fuller was right in there with those really radical-minded people. Now, Charles Fuller himself, I'm not saying he was a Nazi or white supremacist, but he was definitely working with, with Nazis and white supremacists. Um, and... It seems like, just like a lot like Angelus Temple, like we've mentioned, these guys come somehow into orbit of Angelus Temple, of Foursquare, of a Fuller Seminary there, and there is an element of these Nazi-minded, white supremacist, clan-type figures hanging out in these places and having some level of influence. And, you know, I, I think... I don't at all think it's that way anymore. I don't think Fuller Seminary has Nazis or Klan figures there anymore. But as you go back, certainly before the 1950s, um, yeah, there there was bona fide Nazis, there was bona fide Klan figures um, in those places. And anyways, when when Wagner showed up there and became a professor, that was a lot closer to the point in time when those people were still around there. And here's actually a book that Wagner wrote. He wrote this in the 1970s after he had uh, started working at Fuller. It's called Our Kind of People. And this book is essentially a polished up um, 
well-wrote, cleverly worded justification for racial segregation of churches. <laughs> That's what this is. It's a case for the racial segregation of churches in the modern era. And so he wrote that after he joined Fuller in the 70s. And so, again, that might give us a clue to to what he was being influenced there at that time. Now, did he hold those views on to the end of the rest of his life? I don't know. Um, I tend to think maybe not, but I don't know. Um, but then as you come through the 1970s into the 1980s, that's when he comes into contact with John Wimber. So John Wimber is the key man who was behind the Vineyard Movement. And John Wimber was also working with the Kansas City Prophets. And at that moment, Fuller, uh, not Fuller, uh, Wagner also intersects with the Kansas City Prophets, um, who are at that point in time launching the third wave of Pentecostalism. And so S Wagner was really in connection with the third wave of Pentecostalism from its inception, um, and he had actually somehow intersected with those guys before the second wave of Pentecostalism had ended. But anyway, as you, as you come out of the third wave, uh, Wagner becomes a, an important figure, and he helps produce the New Apostolic Reformation as you come out of the third wave of Pentecostalism. And so um, that's interesting stuff. It really is interesting stuff. Right. It's just hard to know. You know, he went to the Fuller Seminary, and Charles Fuller was the founder. So there had to have been, to some extent, an influence from Fuller's historical influence on the school itself. But, you know, when you look at the way the Lateran movement spread, it spread also into South America, and that's where he was a missionary. It's odd to me that he comes back and he gets so deeply involved with the structures of Lateran and the concepts of Lateran, and then builds the new apostolic reformation from it. So, you know, it, it, it's hard to say. We don't, <laughs> we don't know what happened in South America, right? <clears throat> So, speaking of universities, that leads us into a into the next question about the Bob Jones University, and specifically Bob Jones himself. And people have asked us a few different times: Was Bob Jones connected to William Branham or the Latter Rain Movement? Now, that's another great question, and. When I was read that question, I, I had to go look into it a little bit. Of course, I'd heard of Bob Jones, but I was very surprised to find out there's actually three Bob Joneses. <laughs> so, so I had to look into each one of them to figure out, you know, uh, you know what their what their connections were. But um, what I would say is they are generally um, a different branch of the fundamentalist tree. Um, and m my assessment would be that. William Branham and the latter reign did not influence Bob Jones, but the other way around. Uh, Bob Jones um, University and Bob Jones Sr. Uh, were more likely an influence into the message. So it was kind of the, the a reverse sort of a, a situation there. And so the three Bob Joneses, Bob Jones Sr., he died in 1968. He's the man Bob Jones University was named after. Um, he had some links to also Gerald Winrod and other fundamentalist preachers of the early 20th century. And I think there's fair evidence that Bob Jones Sr. was at the very least supportive of the KKK uh, while he was living and rubbing shoulders with the Klan leaders. But as best I know, he was never supportive of Pentecostalism. So he was a, a fundamentalist, uh, but he was not someone I would describe as a fundamental or as a Pentecostal in any way. So he did have inter interactions with some of the Pentecostal and Lateran figures during his life, but it was more... He was much more of an evangelical fundamentalist rather than a Pentecostal fundamentalist. And his son, Bob Jones Jr., now him, we can say he was definitely around a lot of Latter Rain people. Um, I don't know of any direct connections to William Branham, but he was certainly mingling with a lot of Latter Rain preachers up into the 1970s. But coming into the 1970s, he really turned very hard against them all. Um, in the 1980s, he came out and spoke very strongly against the charismatic movement, especially Oral Roberts. Uh, I think Oral Roberts was <laughs> enemy number one in some ways for Bob Jones. Uh, he was junior. He was definitely not on friendly terms with the charismatic movement from the 1980s, and Bob Jones Jr. died in 1997. Then you got Bob Jones III, and he's still living, and uh, I'll be honest, I, I just don't know very much about him, so I, I can't really say, but my understanding is that he's a Baptist, um, and and he's a minister in a Baptist church or Baptist seminary in some way. Um, I don't think he still heads the Bob Jones University. So all that said, um, there's definitely people 
in Lateran movement who were in um, Bob Jones University. There's definitely people from the third wave of Pentecostalism who attended Bob Jones University. But I don't think, um, I really don't think Lateran influenced Bob Jones or Bob Jones University. I think the other way around. Bob Jones University and Bob Jones influenced the men and women going into the Lateran movement. Um, so that, that's how I would probably characterize it. Right. I think I would say the same. This the Lateran movement was the result of cross-pollination of several different ideas and ideologies, and it was an attempt to bring all of these desperate movements together and, you know, try to, it was, it was literally an attempt to try to reinvent Pentecostalism, and whether it succeeded or failed is up for debate, but... It definitely was influenced by outside sources, and I agree with you, Bob Jones and several other universities were producing men who would influence the latter rain movement. What's interesting for me is that <clears throat> William Branham's latter rain um, campaign manager, William T. Freire von Blomberg, was on the board of directors at Bob Jones University. So... For me, I could say that it's potential that the influence went both ways through that simply because here's the man who's taking William Branham in his famous overseas missions, the man who literally took William Branham into Germany and inspired Paul Schaefer, who went into Colonia Dignidad. He's on the board of directors at Bob Jones. And like you said, there's some there appears to be some white supremacy roots it wasn't until, what was it? It was like the year 2000, I believe it was, that Bob Jones first allowed a black, a person with black skin to date a person with white skin in the university. The year 2000. So <clears throat> it's, it's very clear that the racial concepts that was introduced into the latter reign, again, by outside influences into latter reign, was also influencing Bob Jones. It was cross-pollination. There was, you know, there was some Bob Jones influence. There was some Lateran influence, etc. So I'm with you on that. I think it's, um, I think it's safe to say that the majority of influence was from Bob Jones into the Lateran movement. What's really interesting is a lot of people who are in the message aren't aware that William Branham supported Bob Jones University because the latest version of his stage persona as the white supremacy roots grabbed hold of William Branham's campaign strategies, and he was so outspoken against education and seminaries and all of these things, <clears throat> that's how he is remembered. People will say William Branham detested seminaries, but <laughs> he even mentions on recording he's going to send his son Billy Paul to Bob Jones Seminary, and he, you know, Throughout his life, there was a period of time in which he was against seminaries when he was deeply embedded into the fundamentalist roots. Then the stage persona, stage persona shifted. He was all in favor, and he mentioned how he himself wanted to be in a seminary but hadn't. And then later his son, he says his son's going, and then after that, shortly before he died, seminaries were inspired by Satan. <laughs> so there's this weird shift in time. So a person in the message would say, no, Bob Jones was never connected to the message. A person who's in the message cult that exists today, a person who is in the latter rain message, what became and developed into the message would say, oh, absolutely. <laughs> His son, Billy Paul, I think he even went, right, Charles? Billy Paul, I think, went to Bob Jones. Y yes, John, and I was going to mention that too. Uh, you're, you're spot on. So Billy Paul did go to seminary, according to what William Branham said on tape, and it was Bob Jones University that Billy Paul attended. Um, so uh, the main sect of the message is headed, okay, the main sect of the message cult is headed by Bob Jones alumni. <laughs> so <laughs> that is a, that is the truth. You know, I'm sure Bob Jones University would fully denounce the message cult if they knew that. But um, that is that is actually the reality. Um, you know, if what William Branham said on tape about where he sent his son to university is true. Uh, yeah, the message is headed by a Bob Jones alumni um, today. The main sect. Um, of course, I, I, 
I don't know if we're going to get into that. I don't know who runs the main sect anymore, John. It's hard to say. I, I would say it's probably him, but I'm I'm just guessing. <clears throat> I know uh, the younger brother is certainly taken a, a more prominent role the last, probably the last 20 years, but who's in charge there? It's it. I would just be venturing a guess to say which of the two actually runs the show. So, but definitely uh, Billy Paul was running the show for the longest time. So, alrighty. So that kind of takes us to our next question. Um, does the message teach premillennial dispensationalism? And having left the message, do you still believe in that? So, Charles, you know as well as many of the people who've talked with me that <clears throat> I strongly avoid talking about theology in the historical podcast and even in my research presentations because theology is one of those things, in my opinion, you you have people that are so beholden to their way of thinking that if you bring a an opposite opinion, which is still grounded in biblical theology, both opposite opinions, they start fighting, and <laughs> I just, I don't like this. I don't enjoy the argument. So I avoid it. There's only one case in which I do, and that's whenever it's blatantly false. If something is blatantly false, in my opinion, if the latter rain introduced it and it's blatantly false and it's clearly black and white that it's false, I will bring this up because that is historical. And <clears throat> this idea of premillennial dispensationalism, the the different views on the book of Revelation and the corresponding chapters of the Bible, that is wide, there are different views and they're widely adopted by Christian ministers, even in the same denominations of faith, will hold opposing views. And you can't really say that one's right or one's wrong because both have formed an opinion and that opinion that they have is based on the Bible. When we first left the cult of personality, I'll never forget this, the church we went to had a plurality of elders, and each one of, I, I want to say that there were four elders, and I want to say each one did have a different view. It was either that or three of the four had a different view, but they they had different views on premillennial dispensationalism. Some avoided dispensationalism altogether. You had the pre-trib rapture, and what it really boiled down to is the four different views of the book of Revelation, the futurist view, the preterist view, and I, I was shocked, man. How can you go to the same church and have different views on the Bible? It's supposed to be black or white, my brother. <laughs> and I realize that's, you know, now having deprogrammed from this, I realize that is a, it's a very cult indoctrinated scheme to be very black or white. If you don't leave room for the gray, you also don't leave room for the exploration and try to understand, well, why is it gray? What, what do other people believe? Am I correct in my belief? If you take this approach that everybody else is wrong and I'm the only one right, you'll never, ever develop. So I entertained the notion of this, and whenever I did, whenever I started studying each of the different conflicting views on dispensationalism, anti-dispensationalism, rapture theology, anti-rapture theology, what I realized is that the way that the message presented it was black and white false. There, there was no question. Because even in the parables, Jesus talks about that whenever, uh, he's talking about the parable of the wheat and tares, for example, the, the man comes up and says, let's pull all the weeds and Jesus says no let's uh, let them both grow up together so that we don't damage the wheat and then there will be a you know there will be an examination we'll bring everybody up in the harvest we'll take the wheat out of the out of the picture we'll take the tares out of the picture every single passage that I have found that talks about the, the dispensationalism in the way that William Branham taught it William Branham taught a a cult version of dispensationalism that is deemed heresy by every Christian denomination. And that's that there is a group of Christians, and then there is a subset of elite Christians, and all other Christians are, <laughs> they're going to be called with the tares. And then the, um, 
the good people, the good guys, are going to be taken up before all of this happens. That's black and white false. There is absolutely not a single scripture that exists in the Bible that mentions this. And almost every religious cult that's based on Christianity, almost every one of them teach the same thing, that we're the elite Christians, all you other Christians are the false Christians, and we're going to escape while you can't because we have this secret knowledge. And it all really stems from Gnosticism, the the idea that you have a secret that nobody else knows and you're going to hold that secret so that the rest of them are doomed to hell. It's heresy. And Irenaeus, the first Christian apologist, went through this very thoroughly, examining all of the different groups that had developed in this way. They're very destructive. So this has existed throughout time, very well documented. And I will say that The way that the message teaches premillennial dispensationalism, I strongly, I don't even have to disagree. Just open the Bible and read the parables, man. As far as what the churches teach, I'm not going to give my opinion on that because there are differing views, and that enters into the never-ending debatable theology, and I just avoid that. I'll repeat the question. Does the message teach premillennial dispensationalism? And having left the message, do you still believe in that? And so the first part of the answer is is a yes. The message was a premillennial dispensationalist group. Uh, but, but like you say, John, when you subtract William Branham as the last day, end of days, prophet, church age messenger piece, when you subtract that, the message's end of days teachings just collapses. It, it cannot exist without William Branham. So, yes, there there's definitely something deeply wrong with the messages, um, end of days dispensationalist teachings, to be sure, uh, because it, it cannot exist without William Branham, and William Branham was not who he claimed to be. So, so yes, that it, it it it's it, there's definitely something seriously wrong there, and I would say. What is unique about the message's dispensationalist views is that it is a combination of both uh, Millerite ideas and some of the ideas that came from Darby and the Brethren. Um, and I don't know if you know necessarily everyone realizes that. As dispensationalism, you know, from the early 1800s comes in two varieties, and they both developed somewhat independently. Um, the the first variety is what came from William Miller, and you get the Millerites, and then that evolved into the Seven Day Adventists, that evolved into the Jehovah Witnesses over time. So you've got the the Millerite version of um, dispensationalism. And then you have the, the version that came from Darby, which started with United Brethren, um, and was popularized by men like, uh, Dwight Moody. Um, and then that evolved out and was fairly widely accepted among most of the early Pentecostals, most of the, a lot of Baptists accepted it, um, and a lot of evangelicals today. So you've, you've got kind of those two, two sides of it. You've got the Millerite side, you've got the, the Darby side, and they've each kind of evolved on a, on their own independent track. Well, the message merges the two, right? So William Branham, as we mentioned before, he's, he's mixing and matching from all over the place. William Branham is mixing these two, very different systems of dispensationalism um, to produce what he came up with. And and his ideas of church-age messengers, um, his idea of Elijah coming to the church, these sort of things, these are flowing out of the Millerite side of things, right? Um, which you see, again, in Seventh-day Adventism, what you see in um, uh, the Jehovah Witnesses. So, you know, so that side of things is definitely totally bunk. Um, that, that's just junk. And then the, the more, I would say the, the, the Darby side, which is where you'd find Clarence Larkin at, is generally more somewhat widely accepted, I would say. I don't think it's still in any shape or form mainstream today, but, um, just to, just to let you know, there are two sides to it and William Brennan was mixing it. And I think that's something that a lot of people would find on the outside, who who do study dispensationalism in general would find very strange um, that William Brennan mixed those two systems in that way. And in, in short, that's how you end up with a lot of the contradictions in his interpretations of prophetic symbolism. 
um, is someday, sometimes he's using the interpretation out of Mil- the Millerites for his interpretation of symbolism, and then other times he's going to Darby for his interpretation of symbolism. And so it, 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 it creates something that's actually very inconsistent. So, you know, definitely we can say something is seriously wrong, uh, with, with William Branham's dispensationalist teachings. Um, and at the end of the day, once you subtract him and you watch it all fall apart, um, going back and, and just piecing which pieces came from where is a great way to start, um, disentangling all of that and hopefully get back to something that is more, uh, sensible, um, and more, um, more in line with something that's gonna not gonna make you go crazy, okay? Because that that's what the message does, right? It, it is. You're you're exactly right, John. And that whole bit about coming up with elite groups that again is especially common among the Millerites, you know. But then the brethren turned into a pretty nasty cult themselves, right? The the exclusive brethren. So all of these groups are cults, right? Where all this stuff originated. The the Millerites, they're cult. <laughs> the Jehovah Witnesses, yeah, they're they're cult. Uh, the exclusive brethren with the stuff, the Plymouth brethren, what Darby came out of, yeah, they're probably the, they're one of the nastiest cults in the world, from what I understand. So, yeah, all of this stuff did come out of groups that became really ugly cults. Um, so that takes us to our next question. And, um, I will pose this to you, John. Um, why was William Branham staying the night with so many homosexuals? Is there more you know than what you are telling us? <laughs> oh boy, here it is. <clears throat> I've, I've been asked this question since probably about 2012. Whenever I began publishing some of the research that strongly suggests that William Branham himself could have been homosexual, everybody asked me, what do you know? What do you know? <clears throat> and... I've, I've taken a lot of heat from, even from the X message crowd. Just simply asking the question makes a lot of people very angry, <laughs> whether I answer it or not. What is my opinion? What's really odd about this, Charles, is that there are two courts of judgment, right? In American law, if a person does something, let's say some somebody stole your wallet, and you go to the court of law and there is a film, you know, a camera that recorded somebody stealing the wallet. That's documented evidence. You can point to the film or the video and you can say, yes, this person stole the wallet. In that same court of law, if you had a person say, I saw him do it. Well, that's a witness and it's really not enough. And you get a second witness. Well, I heard somebody say that he stole the wallet. Well, that's hearsay. And then you get 20 people that say, yes, I heard a lot of people were saying that he stole the wallet. Well, it's still hearsay. And it, it gets to the point where in American court of law, you cannot be convicted from this sometimes even if it's direct testimony yes i saw it well if they can rule out for whatever reason the witness testimony they'll try to do this and they'll get it thrown out even though there are witnesses that witnessed the event in the christian court of judgment it's the mouth of two or three witnesses was did this person see it yes or no did if you have at least two where the you know, where there are two or three witnesses in the Christian court of judgment, that's what you go with. That's, that's enough. Those are two different, completely different things. I have chosen purposefully my website, research, presentations to choose the, <laughs> the United States court standard. And that's why you see all the documents that exist on the website. I can point to the document and if they want to argue with me, that's fine. I just point them to the document and say, well, your your real argument is with the document. It's not with me or my opinion because here's the document. The document says this. And the problem is because this is a human nature question, what, what they're really trying to get to was William Branham himself homosexual. They're asking why did he stay the night? They're trying to ask, was William Branham homosexual? Well, Who's the person who knows what's inside William Branham's head? And he's dead. You can't even ask him. You have to ask people who knew him. And, you know, 
I hate to say it, Charles, but even if we had a thousand people who said, yes, absolutely, I know William Branham was this, and you've got all of these witnesses that, according to Christian standards, the mouth of two or three witnesses, most Christians would say, okay, yes, this is probably the case. But if you have a group of people who are indoctrinated to believe that this was the man sent from God, the elite authority, it doesn't matter if you had a thousand witnesses, they're still going to reject it. So that's why I've chosen the path of what can you document and what can you not. I, and I know that's a non-answer, but what I will say is this. I have interviewed many witnesses. In fact, you and I <laughs> interviewed a couple of them <clears throat> who it would meet the Christian standard of a mouth or two or three witnesses. Had I chose that route, I probably would have published it. And I still would have got the same backlash either way, right? People are still going to be angry. if Even if you ask the question, they get angry. So what I'll say is I chose the documented standard, and you cannot document what is in a person's head. Is there more that I know than what I'm telling? <laughs> Absolutely. There are things that I cannot say. And even if I said them, Charles, people who are indoctrinated in this cult, they're still not going to listen. They're not going to listen to me. They're just going to say he's lying because I don't have that documented evidence. I, <laughs> I know quite a bit. <laughs> I, there are some stories I wish I could tell. I can't, but I know quite a bit and I'm choosing purposefully to stick with what can I document? What can I prove? Right. I'll, I'll repeat the question. Why was William Branham staying the night with so many homosexuals? Is there more you know than what you're telling us and yeah again the the short answer is yes there is more that we know but you know just like you said john we're trying to stick with what we can prove to you by eyewitness testimony and through documentation and if we do that if we stick to what we can prove through eyewitness testimony and and photographic evidence we can we can prove that one uh there was a significant number of homosexuals in william branham's inner circle we can prove, too, um, at least one of those homosexuals was arrested for committing homosexual acts while they are part of William Branham's entourage on one of his trips. We can prove, three, William Branham was regularly staying the night and having sleepovers with those men. And we can, four, prove that William Branham was sleeping in the same bed as some of those men on those sleepovers, okay? So those are four things we can prove by eyewitness testimonies, uh, by picture, photographic evidence, right? There is no question um, that those things can be proven by direct eyewitnesses and, and multiples of them, including William Branham's own lips <laughs> himself admitting to it. So, so, that, so you've got that. Now, what I would say, John, is that you and I have shown far, far more grace and deference to William Branham on this topic than the message would show to any other living human being on this topic. If there was even a half of the evidence against William Branham, against any other person in the message, that person would be destroyed. That person would be excommunicated. That person would be tarred, feathered, destroyed utterly by the people in the message if there was even half the evidence against them, which there is against William Branham. And what you see there is a... That demonstrates, A, the utter double standard of people in the message, B, the hypocrisy of the leaders, and C, the utter brainwashing of these people that they will look the other way and pretend like none of those things ever happened or it's not a big deal, right? But let me repeat again. There is hard documented evidence from eyewitnesses that significant number of people in William Branham's inner circle were homosexuals. At least one of them was arrested for committing homosexual acts while part of his entourage on a trip. That he was regularly staying the night overnight with those people. And that he was on occasion sleeping in the same bed as those people. Those things can all be proven by eyewitness testimony and photographic evidence. Right, and there's a point D that I'll mention, Charles. The fact that... The theology is so twisted that 
the fact that whenever you mention homosexuality, it creates this <laughs> this sudden stir among the people that they think it's an incurable disease and that the person has committed the ultimate sin from which they can never recover. That's <laughs> that's not the way the message not the way that William Branham says it in his transcripts, but that's the way it has morphed into in his cult of personality. While all other Christians view it as just those who view it as sin, they view it as a sin that let's help the sinner, let's save the sinner, let's support the sinner, let's help them with their sin in the way that we help you with your sin and they help me with my sin. Let's help the sinner because we're all sinners saved by grace. So there's, <laughs> There's a deeper double standard in that this was a false gospel. It taught a false version of salvation, and it was meant to oppress, and it was meant to put additional weights on your shoulders that should never have been. People look to William Branham and his answers on these recordings for their salvation. That's wrong. That's absolutely false. So, Charles, <clears throat> the next question is one that's, more for you than me, but we have people who are asking this. Could you give another example of William Branham copying conflicting doctrines out of his library books? So I, I tried to think about a good example to show for this question, and I tried to think what is probably William Branham's most infamous conflicting statement. And I think his most infamous conflicting statement in the message is whether or not there are seven years or three and a half years left in the week of Daniel. That is probably, I would say, a, a very highly disputed um, dual statement or, or conflicting statement of William Branham. And so what I did, I just went to his library books and I'll just show you show you where he where he where these things come from. This is um, the book uh, the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation by Uriah Smith. So this is Seven Day Adventist. This is the Millerite version of things. Okay. And in this book for example, which William Branham, we know he had in his library, he talked about reading it. In this book, if you will go to the sections where it talks about these things, I'll get you some clear pictures, you'll find that they have three and a half years uh, to their week of Daniel left. Uh, so that is the Millerite side of things, or the views coming out of William Miller. Here is the book of Daniel by Clarence Larkin. And so these teachings are flowing out of um, John Nelson Darby's views. So this is the Darby views of, of of dispensationalism. And so we also know William Branham had this book. He had even said that he read this book on tape when he preached his sermon on the seven or on the on when he read when he preached Daniel's seventieth week. He said this was the book he studied actually in the sermon, right? And if you open up this book, for example, and you look at it, you'll find that this book tells goes with the seven years left um, version of things, right? So you've got the Darby version evolved out of Darbyism. You've got the seven years. You've got the three and a half years coming out of the William Miller and the Millerites. And William Branham is looking at both. And so what you have is when he preached the version in 1961, I believe, he preached the, seven, the week of Daniel in 61, he was primarily copying from um, Clarence Larkin's book of Daniel. But then later on, I don't know if he forgot that he copied out of that book or what, or maybe he got looking at Uriah Smith's book and started liking the pictures in it. There's a lot nicer pictures in this book. Maybe he liked the pictures better. I have no idea, right? But at some, for some reason, he then switches over to this book and he's using the symbolism out of this book again. And if you just open these books and look through them, you will find that there is so much that he told us that he got from God that he literally just read out of these books. It's incredible. But, but that, that's a, that's an example of him preaching two contradictory things that caused all kinds of problems in the message. Um, and it just depends on the, um, on the book, I guess he picked up in his library that day when he went to study the subject before he preached on it. And he just mixed up, uh, which book that he used. And it's uh, it, it's pretty bizarre, and it's really unfortunate and very sad. But if you want to double-check William Branham's sources to figure out which is right for yourself, well, hey, I just told you the two books to go look at, and you go figure out which book you think is the right one. Yeah, Charles, this question was for you. You have the library books. You can see them in the background in the video feeds. I don't have 
the, the library books. I know some of what's in them, but the question was for you. But I'm going to answer the actual question because I can tell from this question, this came from a person who was deeply influenced by William Branham's ministry and the wrestling with it. And the reason I say that, Charles, is because if a man claims to have a divine inspiration and then gives that divine inspiration, claiming that it came between him and God, and then it was proven beyond the shadow of a doubt that he stole that from somebody else, a person who's never been indoctrinated in this cult of personality or anything similar will just simply say, well, that man is a liar. (laughs) They're not going to ask another question. It's not going to matter if you find two. All you have to find is one. If you can find one example of the man claiming to have gotten something from God when he didn't, a normal person who's a quote-unquote normal person who has never been in this type of religion, this type of theology, they're just going to run screaming and discredit the whole thing. That man's a liar. He claimed he got something from God, and he did not. A better way of saying this, here in downtown Louisville, we have the Muhammad Ali Center. And Charles, if you and I were to spend some Saturday and go, maybe we should do this, take our families and spend a Saturday going through the Muhammad Ali Museum, and we get back on the podcast, and suddenly you say, John, last night I had a vision, and God spoke to me and said that we all need to float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. Well, if I've never heard this, I'm going to think, Okay, that's pretty weird. But if I know Muhammad Ali, and I know that was one of his famous quotes, I'm going to say, no, you saw that in the Muhammad Ali Center, and I'm not going to believe another thing that you say if you tell me that you got this from God, right? That's just the way this works. Another example is the, the halo. We've got, you can read through the comment feeds. We've got this one person that continually asks the same question. We know that so many parts of William Branham's story are proven false beyond the shadow of a doubt, absolutely proven false. And a person who's never been involved in this religion, if they look at that photograph, they're not immediately going to think, oh, he's got a halo. (laughs) Instead, they're going to think, there's something wrong with that photo. Either that's capturing a light or somebody has taken a photograph with a faulty camera. And... We even have evidence of the man who held the camera. The man who snapped that photograph said he believed that his camera was faulty and that it was taking a picture that should not have been there. Now, we've given all of the evidence, and you can decide for yourself. If you're in this cult, you're probably still going to have the question forever. But if you weren't, you're not not even going to ask this question. This is not a question that comes to your mind. So in my opinion, this <laughs> this question, Charles, you could give a thousand examples. In fact, how many? We've probably given a hundred examples of William Branham copying, plagiarizing, stealing, lying, cheating. <laughs> it's not going to matter. You could give a thousand, and if you're of the mindset that this was a man sent from God, it's not going to matter. You say, well, you'll say, okay, that one was false, but he said this other thing. And that one was false. Well, he said this other thing. And that will just continue until you're able to get that brainwashing out of your head. So for me, my <laughs> my non-answer, since I don't have the library books, is that, you know, you have to deprogram first before some of these questions will even make sense. Well, Charles, we've we've gone about an hour. We um <clears throat> we've, we've got so many questions. We're probably going to split this up. So I will have... You know, it's going to look like we're continuing the podcast. You and I will actually record, but we'll split this up so that it's digestible to the people who are listening on the the audio feeds. And then on the video feeds, we'll split it up even further to make this more digestible. And we'll um, we'll come back next week and we'll get some get some additional questions and hopefully we'll answer the deep burning questions that people are sending to us so if you've enjoyed our show and you want more information you can check us out on the web you can find us at william-branham.org and christiangospelchurch.org for an overview of the historical research of william branham and the healing revivals 
Read Preacher Behind the White Hoods, a critical examination of William Branham and his message. Available on Amazon, Kindle, and Audible. Join us again next week. We've got a great episode coming. <laughs>